Chapter 23 of Monica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Little Miss Clumsy. Monica by Evelyn Everett Green. Beatrice. Beatrice, I believe my words are coming true after all. I begin to think you are getting tired of travelling already. It was Monica who spoke thus. She had surprised Beatrice alone in the boudoir at dusk one afternoon, sitting in an attitude of listless dejection, with the undoubted brightness of unshed tears in her eyes. But the girl looked up quickly, trying to regain all her usual animation, though the attempt was not a marked success and Monica sat down beside her and laid one hand upon hers in a sort of mute caress. "'You are not happy with us, Beatrice. I see it more and more plainly every day. You have grown pale since you came here, and your spirits vary every hour, but they do not improve, and you are often sad. I think travelling cannot suit you. I think I shall have to prescribe change of hair and scene, and a meeting later on, in some other place." Monica spoke with a sort of grave gentleness that indicated a tenderness she could not well express more clearly. For answer, Beatrice suddenly flung herself on her knees before her hostess, burying her face in her hands. "'Oh, don't send me away, Monica! Don't send me away! I could not bear it, indeed, I could not. I am miserable. I am wretched company. I don't wonder you are tired of me. But, ah, oh, don't send me away from you and from Trevlin. I think I shall die if you do. Oh, why is the world such a hard, cruel place? Monica was startled at this sudden outburst, for, since the day following her arrival, Beatrice had showed herself unusually reserved. She had been distrait, absorbed, fitful in her moods, but never once expansive. Therefore, this unexpected impulse towards confidence was the more surprising. "'Beatrice,' she said gently, "'I did not mean to distress you. You know how very, very welcome you are to stay with us. But you are unhappy.' You are far more unhappy than when you came." Beatrice shook her head vehemently at this point, but Monica continued in the same quiet way. "'You are unhappy. You are restless and miserable. Beatrice, answer me frankly. Would you be happy if Tom Pendril were not here? He has already outstayed his original time, and we could quite easily get rid of him if his presence is a trouble to you. We never stand on ceremony with Tom, and Randolph could manage it in a moment." Beatrice lifted a pale, startled face. "'Tom Pendril?' she repeated almost sharply. "'What has he got to do with it? What makes you bring in his name? What do you know about—about—' She stopped suddenly. "'I know nothing except what I see for myself nothing but what your face and his tell me. It is easy to see that you have known each other before, and under rather exceptional circumstances, perhaps. Do you think it escapes me, 
that feverish gaiety of yours whenever he is near, gaiety that is expanded in laughing, chatting, flirting, perhaps, with the other guests, but is never by any chance directed to him. Do you think I do not notice how quickly that affectation of high spirits evaporates when he is gone? How many fits of sad musing follow in its wake? How is it you two never talk to one another, never exchange anything beyond the most frigid commonplaces? It is not your way to be so distant and so cool, Beatrice. There must be a reason. Tell me truly, would you not be happier if Tom Peldrill were to go back to St. Moe's? But Beatrice shook her head again and heaved a long, shuddering sigh. Oh, no, no, she said. Don't send him away. Nothing really matters now. Nothing can do either good or harm. Let him stay. I think his heart is made of ice. He does not care. Why should I? It is nothing but my folly and weakness. Only it brings it all back so bitterly. All my pride and self-will and stubbornness. Well, I have suffered for it now. It was plain that a confession was overing on Beatrice's lips, that she was anxious at last to unburden herself of her secret. Monica helped her by asking a direct question. Were you engaged to him once? No, no, not quite. I had not got quite so far as that. I might have been. He asked me to be his wife, and I... I... She posed and then went on more coherently. I will tell you all about it. It was years ago, when I was barely eighteen. A gay, giddy girl, just out, full of fun, very wild and saucy, and sorrowfully spoiled by persistent petting and indulgence. I was the only daughter of the house, and believed that Lady Beatrice Wentworth was a being of vast importance. Well, I suppose people spoiled us because we were orphans. We were all more or less spoiled, and I think it was the ruin of my eldest brother. He was at Oxford at the time I am speaking of, and I was taken to commemoration by some gay friends of ours who had brothers and sons at Oxford. It was there I met Tom Pendrill. He was the chum of one of the undergraduate sons of my chaperon, and he was a great man just then. He had distinguished himself tremendously in the schools, I know, had taken a double first or something and other things besides. He was quite a lion in his own set, and I heard an immense deal in his praise, and was tremendously impressed, quite convinced that there was not such another man in the world. He was almost always in our party, and he took a great deal of notice of me, he gave us breakfast in his rooms, and I sat next him and helped to do the honours of the table. You can't think how proud I was at being singled out by him, how delighted I was to walk by his side, listening to his words of wisdom, how elevated I often felt, how taken out of myself into quite a new world of thought and feeling. Beatrice posed. A smile, half sad, half bitter, played for a moment over her face. Then she took up the thread of her narrative. 
I need not go into the subject of my feelings. I was very young, and all the glamour of youth and inexperience was upon me. I had never, in all my life, come across a man in the least like him, so clever, so witty, so cultured, and withal with so strong a personality. He was not silent and cynical, as he is now, but full of life and sparkle, of brilliance and humour. I was dazzled and captivated. I believe there had never been such a man in the world before. He was my ideal, my hero, and he seemed to court me, which was the most wonderful thing of all. You know what young girls are like. No, perhaps you don't, and I will avoid generalities and speak only of myself. Just because he captivated me so much, my fancy, my intellect, my art, just because I began to feel his power growing so strongly upon me, I grew shy, frightened, restive. I was very willful and capricious. I wanted me him to admire me, and I was proud that he seemed to do so, but I did not in the least want to acknowledge his power over me. I was frightened at it. I tried to ignore it, to keep it off. So, in a kind of foolish defiance and mistrust of myself, I began flirting tremendously with a silly young Marquis, whom I heartily despised and disliked. I only favoured him when Tom Pendrill was present, for I wanted to make him jealous and to feel my power over him. Cockretry is born in some women, I believe. I am sure it was born in me. I did not mean any harm. I never cared a bit for the creature. I cared for no one but the man I affected now to be tired of. But rumours got about. I suppose it would have been a very good match for me. People said I was going to marry the cub, and I only laughed when I heard the report. I was young, vain, and foolish enough to feel rather flattered than otherwise. She posed a moment with another of those bittersweet smiles and went on very quietly. Why are girls so badly brought up? I was not bad at heart, but I was vain and frivolous. I loved to inflict pain of a kind upon others till I played once too often with edge tools and have suffered for it ever since. Of course, Tom Pendril heard these reports and of course they angered him deeply, for I had given him every encouragement. He did not know the complex workings of a woman's heart, her wild struggles for supremacy, before she can be content to yield herself up forever a willing sacrifice. He did not understand, how should he? I did not either, till it was too late. I saw him once more alone. We were walking by the river one moonlight night. He was unlike himself, silent, moody, imperious. All of a sudden it burst out. He asked me, almost fiercely, if I would be his wife. He almost claimed my promise as his right, said that I owed him uh, that reparation for destroying his peace of mind. How my heart leapt as I heard those words! A torrent of love seemed to surge over me. I was terrified at the depths of feeling he had stirred up. 
I struggled with a sort of fury against being carried away by it, against betraying myself too unreservedly. I don't remember what I said. I was terribly agitated. I believe in my confusion and bewilderment I said something disgusting about my rank and his uh, the difference between us. Then he cast that odious marquis in my teeth, supposed that the report he had heard was true, that I was going to sell myself for the reversion of a ducal coronet, since I thought so much of rank. I was furious, all the more furious because I had brought it on myself, though, had he but known it, it was ungenerous to take me at the disadvantage and cast my words back at me like that, words spoken without the least consideration or intention. But, right or wrong, he did it, and I answered back with more vehemence than before. I don't know what I said, but it was enough for him, at any rate. He turned upon me. I think he almost cursed me, not in words, but in the cruel scorn expressed in his face and in his voice. Ah, it hurts me even now. Then he left me without another word, without a sign or sound of farewell, left me standing alone by that river. I never saw him again till we met in your drawing-room that night. Beatrice posed. Monica had taken her hand in token of sympathy, but she did not speak. Of course, at first I thought he would come back. I never dreamed he would believe I had really led him on, only to reject him with contempt when once he dared to speak his heart to me. We had quarrelled, and I was very miserable, knowing how foolish I had been. But I never, never believed for a moment that he would take that quarrel as final. Two wretched days of suspense followed. Then I heard that he had left Oxford the morning after our interview by the river, and I knew that all was over between us. That is the story of my life, Monica. It does not sound much to tell, but it means a good deal to me. I have never loved anyone else. I do not think I ever shall. Monica was silent. Neither has he. Beatrice's eyes were full of a sort of wistful sadness and tender regret, but she only kissed Monica very quietly and stole silently from the room. End of chapter 23